0: those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were the first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be the great famine over all the land. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word.
1: All right, you may be seated. <laughs> Yeah, Nick talked last week about how it was a really bad time to have allergies with COVID, and I just swallowed water down the wrong pipe, and I was like, perfect. I'm going to get up here and just start coughing like crazy. And Yeah, anyway, these are just things you don't want to happen um, in 2020 in general. But as I said, this is our our last uh, discipleship kind of message for the year. That's been our theme, and I'm calling it the influence of discipleship. Been really interested to think this through, and um, and I hope what comes through today makes sense and that you see it um, coming out of the scripture in the book of Acts and uh, and others. We've we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we've talked about discipleship in many different ways. I honestly hope that you don't have like three easy steps to discipleship from this year because we have adamantly not done that. Um, we've we've talked about all these just different methods by which. Discipleship just happens through the people of God, and we've kind of said you are discipling um, whether you want to or not. By being a Christian who lives and walks in the world, you have um, a role to spread the gospel and disciple, and whether or not you want to do that or not, you do, because you are God's people in the world. And so as people watch you and engage with you, you are discipling. And the question is just, what do, I, what do I do with that? How do I, how do I invest in that? Um, how do I view that, and how do I kind of take that seriously? So this last time, we're talking about the influence of discipleship. Uh, this passage that, that Rochelle just read to us has some interesting themes. I just kind of want to point these out on the front end just to, you know, kind of give you the Bible is really relevant talk in a way. Um, First of all, it begins with the idea of persecution. Um, Now, persecution in this context was because Stephen, the first deacon of the church, had given a very um, powerful and important theological speech uh, to Jewish people in which he had really pointed out to them that You know, all throughout their history, God had been moving toward them, calling them to himself, calling them to follow after him, and that they, as God's people, as his church, if you will, had over and over been stiff-necked, meaning that they were very set in their ways and unwilling to hear the word of the Lord, and that they had gone so far as to reject his message from his prophets and then eventually from his son, who had come and had died at their hands. And he pointed out that they had guilt due to that. And um, being the way that God's people often were in the Bible, they didn't receive that and go, you're so right. Thank you, deacon. Thank you, Stephen. You're the best. They picked up stones and they killed him. And from there, a persecution broke out, where more and more of the early church folks began to be killed at the hands of the people who who they were saying, your scriptures, our scriptures proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, and they began to lose their lives. This is a persecution much more like the persecution you might see in like a Southeast Asia today, North Africa, the Middle East, or in deep Southern Mexico um, the kind where you'd have to go to the voice of the martyrs and look for the hostile zones, right? Now, depending on the circles you're in today, you might be hearing about persecution. It's This is a, this is a big reality right now. Some of you are. You're thinking about it. It's on your radar. Some of you are, are saying, well, in my circles, in my Christian circles, nobody's talking about persecution. And you're That's true. There are certain circles in which nobody is talking about that, but there are certain circles in which this is the big word right now. Maybe because of world events, persecution is around the corner. And this scripture is based out of a time where there actually was. Now, history bears out that in times and places where the gospel gets pushed back, especially persecution, the gospel grows and spreads. Now, I should say, uh, I said this morning to the, the church up in Phoenix. Um, if you are into that, if you're just really excited about persecution, you're like, yeah, persecution. The church grows. Um, we know we know a good psychiatrist. Um, you might want to start talking to somebody about this. Like nobody should want that. Okay, that's not you don't you don't want that. But the truth is, even though nobody wants that, the truth is that the gospel has always grown and spread when it's been opposed. It has. And that's what was happening here. In this intense persecution, these people are pushed out from Israel and they went and they began to spread the gospel. And then they began to push out of other places and spread it even further, even into Antioch. At the end of Acts 11, we have this This tragedy, this famine in the entire known world. So, you know, not quite COVID, a little different, but there was death and there was suffering. And the Christians banded together to support one another. And I don't think this excludes, this doesn't mean that these Christians only supported other Christians. I I have a feeling they helped out any neighbor that they might have had. But it was just very remarkable that a church, like a church in Antioch, a brand new church in a very secular city, would turn and support the church in Judea. This was a really incredible fact. And so the history book here, the history that Luke writes down, he takes note of it. It's a very notable event that this new church in a city like Antioch turned and helped and supported a church in Judea. This is, this is surprising. This is a big deal. This is This is a marker that this is a unique community that's been formed in the city of Antioch. And so these two, you know, maybe parallels to our day are are where we begin to see the influence of the early church. You get little highlights. First, it grew due, due to persecution. It became influential because it was opposed. Not because everything went so well, but because it was opposed. And secondly, it got influence because it was notable for the way it loved, for the way they loved one another in really surprising ways. And so influence, there's a couple little highlights of it. I want to press in on that today, just the influence that we should expect as a disciple-making community. What should we expect? Now, before we get into the specifics there, I want to say this, that I think, and I've been thinking about this, when it comes to influence, it seems like Christians take one of two paths, especially, and then there's a muddy middle. And I'll I'll mention a couple of thoughts about the muddy middle, but there's so much in there, I really can't even draw it all out. But it seems like there are a couple of paths. One is an assumption that for Christianity to be at its best and to achieve its missional goals... It has to be in power, okay? And I'm going to rephrase that to, to say it another way that's also unfortunately kind of true. One assumption is that Christianity, Christianity's best shot to have an easier existence in the world is for it to be in power, See that nuance? Sometimes, sometimes it's more about the latter than the former. I think that this idea usually comes from the idea of the former. We can do our job if we're in power. But then the truth is we often slide into saying we could be more comfortable if we're in power. Now, the other path, I said there's one or two. The other path is to assume Christianity shouldn't have much influence at all. And there are various different reasons you could think this. Um, But it would kind of go like this. This would be the very simple way of saying it. Christianity is supposed to stay kind of small until it nearly dies and Jesus comes back and gets even. Have you ever heard something sort of like that? Christianity is going to get very small until it almost dies. And then Jesus comes back and gets even. He evens the score and we win. But in this world, our influence, very, very minimal. And if that's true you end up sort of having a feeling of why bother? Why try? It's just get through it. Just survive. Of course, like I said, there's a lot of views in the muddy middle of all that. I mean, do you remember a year ago? I mean, some people around our church here and other places started watching The Family on Netflix. Anybody watch The Family? Anybody, anybody? No, you guys are so, you guys are outside getting exercise. That's great. Well, um... The family freaked out some people here and elsewhere because it was this group of people in Washington, D.C., who gathered together, and they, and they talked about Jesus. And they had, they had the Gospels, and, but they were very involved in politics. And you began to ask a question, is this Christianity gaining influence? Am I comfortable with it? Is that good? Is that the way it's supposed to work? Or is Christianity being used to get people influence that has nothing to do with Christianity? The show invited you to struggle with that, and it had a spin. It wasn't wasn't written, you know, as a friendly show to Christianity. I would never say it was, but it made you question, what was the role of of this influence of Christianity here? And it it invited that question very well. Another um, piece in the muddy middle that I've noticed, and this is one I've really been pouring a lot of time into Several of you have already been bombarded by me on this very topic. So if if that's you, I'm sorry. I know I've done it to Andrew um, at least and Mike and John and people like that. But I think a big question that I've had that, that gets at this idea of how much influence do we have or should we have as Christians comes out of the question of what's next for you in redemptive history. What do you think is next? What happens next? In God's plan. And depending on your answer to that question, your view of the amount of influence that Christianity has in the world or needs to have is very, very different. Very, very different. And there there are a number of different answers that people in this room, in our church, have to that question. And sometimes we don't realize we have different answers to that question. So we don't understand why we have different views on how influential we should be in our culture. But all that said, I could go into that, you know, with you. I'm, I could waste hours of your life on that if you'd like. But I want to work out from this scripture what I believe we should expect. What we should expect because there's, there's such, such a spectrum here. What should we expect when it comes to having influence as Christians? I'm going to give you my thesis now and then break it into three pieces and work it out. I believe from this scripture and many others that Christians can have incredible influence But God will not grant us our idols along with it, and it must move in multiple directions. Okay? I'll work that out. I believe Christians can have incredible influence, though God won't give us our idols along with it, and it must move in multiple directions. Let me work through that thesis here. Christians can have incredible influence. Look, this is exactly what happened in this scripture, right? Faith in Christ sweeps into Antioch without even the guidance of an apostle. If you look in at that scripture, you know, elsewhere, you know, Paul goes and he sets up the church. Here, it comes through these people who come from the areas of Cyprus and Cyrene. We don't even know their names. These are North African folks and people from an island called Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. And Cyprus is an interesting place, very diverse because it had been occupied by multiple empires. Many people, it was strategic, people took it over and they, and they brought in their people and it became kind of a melting pot kind of place. And people during this persecution, they were going out from Israel only to the Jews, our scripture said, but these North Africans and these people from Cyprus went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, which is really, we don't know who these people were. We don't have any, they, they obviously weren't the big name people. They just spread there and they started talking to the Greeks in Antioch, so influential that eventually Antioch grew to be a central hub of the movement. And it became known today, if you, if you kind of look up in the books and stuff, they call it the cradle of Christianity. The faith grew to the degree that in our scriptures, the people of Antioch began to have to come up with a new category for these people that believed these things. And this is a big deal. I mean, they, they were so, they'd become so prominent, they had, to, they had to create a new citywide category. This was a large city, Antioch. It's kind of like a Colorado Springs, if you will. Like, for them to have to come up with a new category for this group of people means they, they were pretty sizable. They'd really grown, and they had people's ear. Interestingly, you had a number of the world's cities there. There's a, a philosopher, Labanius, Um, from Antioch. And he said this, indeed, if a man had the idea of traveling all over the earth with a concern, not to see how cities looked, but to learn their ways, their individual ways, Antioch would fulfill his purpose and save him journeying. If he sits in our marketplace, he will sample every city. There will be so many people from each place with whom he can talk. I mean, talk about a place that would be called pluralistic or secular. I mean, Antioch, this is This is a place of many, many, many different types of people, many cities, as this philosopher said, and in that city that brought cities together, you had the people that Christ called a city on a hill, and they became for the first time distinguished by the name of Christ himself. They were called Christians, which simply means followers of Christ. Okay, so God's grace, God's message of grace can have great influence. It it did in Antioch. It it has elsewhere. Many times, I mean, I'm just going to hit a couple quick quick ones here. In the Old Testament, when the other nations heard of Israel being delivered from Egypt through miraculous acts, many people paid attention, began to honor the God of Israel, and actually joined in with the nation of Israel. People converted in because they heard of the grace of, the undeserved, incredible salvation that God gave to his people, okay? That's influence, influence, influential. It happened when Jonah proclaimed a way of repentance to Nineveh. There was a lot of influence that happened. The people listened. They didn't, it didn't stick probably for a long time, but they heard that. They listened. It had a lot of influence that a God might relent from what they deserved and let them off and give them grace, happened over and over again in the New Testament. When Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost in Jerusalem, thousands of people heard a message where Peter came to them and he said, he said, you killed the Lord of glory. I mean, and that wasn't like just kind of a theoretical thing to say. I mean, they killed the Lord of glory recently, right? And he came and said, you did that, but repent And be refreshed because he's offering you grace. And you can come and receive that. And thousands of people believed. And and there was great influence. Nick last week talked about Cornelius, the home of Cornelius, where Peter, after he accepted kind of the angelic divine dream that he had that said that the Gentiles could be acceptable by faith, he went to Cornelius and Cornelius had gathered people and everyone in his household came to faith. I mean, that's influence, and so clearly, grace and God's message can come with great influence. But, number two, God won't give us our idols along with it. Interestingly, in Antioch, some say the name Christian was an insult. Maybe you've heard this. I mean, it meant little Christ. It didn't quite mean that. It meant follower of Christ, really. But there, there is an interesting other side of it. Many people in Antioch spoke Latin, and the word Christus, which in Greek, uh, means anointed one in Latin means oily. That's a little unfortunate, right? I mean, you could kind of imagine some some little jokes being made, you know, They're a little slimy those those folks, I'm a little oily. I mean, I don't know. We don't have any documentation of this. It reminds me kind of of you know. I don't think this was you know all the time, but I'm sure it, I'm sure it happened that people made this little connection and kind of gave them a hard time. It reminds me of what people said about the, the Chevy Nova in Mexico. You guys aware of this little marketing story that Chevy tried to sell their Nova in Mexico? But Nova in Spanish, if you break it up, means Nova, which mean no, means no drive. <laughs> and so, you know, that it didn't sell very well. Um, that's actually not true, by the way. They, um, it sold just fine. That's just, it's in a bunch of marketing textbooks, and it's total garbage. It's not actually true. But I'm sure in Mexico, the joke happened, right? Probably a couple people, they were like, Nova, <laughs> you know, idiots. And they bought the car anyway. I mean, it's, it's like me and Ford, right? Many of you know I own two Fords, but I know what Ford stands for, found on road dead. I know. Okay, I've heard it. But I still have one, you know, but, I, but I've heard the joke. I mean, I'm sure that's kind of what it was like in Antioch with the word Christian. It was a thing where, you know, it didn't mean that people were just like constantly making fun of them with the name. But at the same time, it did have this little joke side of it where they got made fun of a little bit for it. And so being, being called a Christian wasn't always a blessing. They were kind of oily. And, and you know, that's like a small idol to have collapsed for you, you know, your new name kind of gets made fun of sometimes. It kind of hurts your pride, but there's, there's, you know, it's it's not too bad. We do believe that elsewhere in the Bible, being a Christian didn't lead you to have just a badge of honor. The, the word's only used three times here in Acts 11. Um, it's used then by uh, Herod Agrippa, who says to Paul, did you think in such a short time you could convince me to become a Christian? That's number two time it's used, and that's probably a little bit negative, and then the third time is in 1 Peter 4, where he says this, and um, I want to prepare you all because this first verse is going to be the new plaque for your wall when people walk in, all right? You ready for it? Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We're going to all post that in our hallways, all right? Just don't be surprised as if something, you know, strange were happening to you. That wouldn't, that wouldn't sell very well as a plaque. But Peter said... But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers, and here's the word, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It seems like Peter's assumption is that if you're a Christian, if you're known as a Christian, That's not going to mean you're really popular. It's going to get you some flack. Chances are. And he assumes you're going to get flack. There's going to be some fiery trials. And you might want to feel ashamed of that name, but don't. Own it. Because it's the name of Christ. Um, Interestingly, at the end of there, he says, what do you do when you deal with that? Entrust your soul to a faithful creator and do good, right? Interestingly, over the centuries, Christians, when hated, have trusted in many other things and done bad, right? We need to own this. We, as Christians, need to own this. We have murmured and murdered and cheated over and over and over when we have been faced with some trials, We need to own that. We have not done what we were told to do trust in a faithful creator and do good. We have put our trust in other things and done horrors, truthfully. And that's on us. And we've done that lately. And we've all done it. And why do we do it? Why do we do that? Because we have idols. And here's a working definition of an idol for you. It's not just a, you know, a big statue in a house. An idol, in the idea of the scriptures, is anything good that is treated as if it's ultimate. Another way you could say that, anything good that's treated like a God, that gets your worship. What does the word worship mean? When something's worth a lot to you. When you treat something as if it's worth a lot, when you treat Something like it's worth more than God is worth to you. We have idols. Some of them, just a small list, we want to be in power. We want comfort. We want things to be laid out perfectly for us so that we win. We don't want to deal with pain and loss. Now, God may bring times of refreshing and prosperity and growth, but... If those words do not correspond to our love for God and if we're not thankful to God for those things, but those things become our aim, what we want more than God, great question John Piper once asked as he said, if you got to heaven and you were utterly healthy and all of your friends and family were there, all the sickness and pain and disease was gone, would you be satisfied with that if God wasn't there? if the honest answer of our hearts is, I didn't even really think about that God would be there. I was just looking forward to seeing my grandpa, who I haven't seen in a long time. I was just looking forward to not having these bodily ailments. I was looking forward to the disease and the trouble being gone. There's your idol. We want those things more than we want God. Now God, in case you've you know, miss this in the scriptures, is not in the idolatry promotion business. He tears them down every time. And sometimes with them, if you read history, you'll see he tears down the people with the idol and their church and their nation and their reputation. And he tears it down with zeal. Jesus cleared the money changes from the temple. Moses threw down the golden calf. That is what God does with idols. Why? Because he wants to wreck your life? No, he wants to save you. These are the things that are killing you. These are good things turned into ultimate things. They're leading you down the wide path that leads to destruction. He loves you. He will not leave them on the shelf. Antioch by the way is buried today under the sprawling city of Antakya, Turkey, after several crusades becoming a centerpiece in Constantine's empire when Christianity came into power. When Christianity when Christianity came to Antioch, it was categorized and perhaps ridiculed by others because it was unique it caused people to love one another it changed people it brought people together who were normally driven apart but something changes when god's people aren't the outsiders anymore they seem to lose something it seems to be why god keeps tearing down our churches i'm saying god tears them down cuz god is sovereign We begin to reject God's grace. We begin to depend upon ourselves. In Matthew 11, 16 to 19, which I read at the beginning, Jesus talked about the ways that people reacted to himself and his waymaker, John the Baptist. But get this, he talked about how his church reacted to him, how his people reacted to him. John the Baptist came preaching repentance to God's people. It'd be like if he came to us now in the church, not to the broader culture. And then Jesus came primarily to his people. He started with his people, right? And what did he say? He said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I hear Jesus saying, there's no pleasing you people. No matter how I come to you, no matter how I phrase the message, you reject it. You don't want to hear a message of repentance. You don't want to hear a message of grace. See, John and Jesus brought the two sides of the gospel message, repentance and acceptance by faith. That's like a double-edged sword that God always carries. Repentance means simply this. You're going the wrong way for the wrong reasons. You need to turn around. That's repentance. You're going the wrong way, and it's motivated by the wrong motivations. That's what John came and taught. Repentance, repentance, repentance. And then Jesus says, here's how you turn. And he offers himself, he offers grace, unconditional love and acceptance based on his death, his sacrifice, his perfection. And so he goes to the most undeserving people And he lavishes freely upon them his mercy in order that they would turn and walk the right way for the right reasons because they love him, right? And see what happens? What what do you need to, to accept either one of those things? You need humility. To repent, you have to be able to admit, I wander away constantly. My motives in and of themselves, are self-centered. And so therefore, I do the wrong things. And then an acceptance or a need for grace takes humility because it means I have not achieved my own righteousness. I'm not good in and of myself. I must have a stand-in. I must be redeemed by a savior. I need help. It takes humility. Two things religious people often lack. And when you come into power and you believe that God is on your side, you begin to lose the humility. The religious person who thinks they please God by being good thinks that calls for repentance are too serious and that those who reach out with radical grace to the undeserving are too licentious and bring bad company around. Jesus and John truly brought the same ministry, and they began to offend people in both directions. People couldn't decide. They were either too serious or too licentious. What what do we do with these people? They don't fit. Neither did the believers in Antioch. They didn't fit. And that's why they got their distinct name. That's why they were called Christians. So, okay, a ministry of God's grace can have great influence, but God won't give us our idols with it. He won't. It can't just fit. He won't give us our big team and our acceptance that we want and our power, which leads finally to the fact that our influence must move in multiple directions because you're not going to fit anywhere but in Christ. Let me work that out for a second. What do I mean from that? by that? From a position of not fitting in, as the Christians did not in Antioch, the Christian can influence in more directions than most people are able to, Okay. Imagine this. And why do we need that? Because the enemy prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he doesn't just come from one way or the other. He comes from whatever way he can. He'll come at you any direction he can. So you need to be on guard. And we need to be able to move and critique in every single direction. What's just, for goodness sakes, we've been in a political just firestorm, haven't we? What would it be like if Christians couldn't be categorized as right or left? What would that be like if they could actually lead and influence in either direction, where they could see wisdom on either side, where they could critique and see the idols on both sides, where they didn't fit? Imagine the difference if people were like looking at our American landscape and they said, I've heard they have Democrats, and I heard they had Republicans, and then there's this thing, these other people, and they only seem to follow Christ. And sometimes they do a Democrat-looking thing, but then they do a Republican-looking thing. And uh, what is it? That'd be great. We had a discussion recently where um, I said, you know what I think happens in our church? I said, I think... I think, some, I think if the people who lean, you know, liberal in our church think I'm a flaming conservative. And I think the conservative leaning people in our church think I'm a flaming liberal. And John just started laughing and he was like, it's true. And I was like, yes, great, perfect. Let's be like that in the world. Let's not fit. Let's do it. What too often happens if we choose a, great, a group based on something other than Christ? This is, um, C.S. Lewis warned us about this in his book, Mere Christianity. It's where it, where it got its name, by the way. He has this idea that we must be committed to mere Christianity. And what he means by that, and he, and he used some political ideas and stuff in his book, but he said, if if we are committed to, like, let's say today, like, I am, conv- I am committed to Western individualistic... Um, American Christianity he would say, Stop that. only mere Christianity that 's your number one commitment. Now you can have these other views these are these are all you know logical ways you might think, but you might be able to think differently, but let your top tier thing as a Christian just just be Christianity just be a repentance from dead works and faith in Jesus Christ that transforms you into the likeness of Christ. Like, just that. And let that challenge everything else. Which means you will not find a large crowd to affirm you. And that's what we often want. We want to gather in a group who's either, I believe, in charge or trying to be in charge and live in that echo chamber because it feels like we have a home that's seriously the state of our nation right now. It's a huge challenge to most pastors I know, which by the way, like I'm, I'm uncomfortable with saying this, but I got to say it on behalf of another pastor that wasn't me in Phoenix. And I just thought, this is really important. We need, to, we need to say this. Seriously, it's so easy for us to gather in different echo chambers to go like, I'm over here or I'm over there. I believe, and I think the scriptures really do lean into this, that the people of God their primary influence should be within their own gathered community, that they should be listening to one another and their leaders and their elders first as they follow Christ. And if they're not following Christ, then move on. But you should listen to them first rather than gathering in another echo chamber. These people know you. I mean, if you knew how much we as elders try to lead you specifically, this church, I don't give a rip about churches, like, well, I care, but I'm not trying to lead churches anywhere else, even in our city. I mean, I don't. I don't think about the people in any other church here. I don't think about the people in any other church in the country or the world. I think about you. Nick thinks about you. All of our elders, Mike, Ray. Andrew, we think about you, and we're trying to lead you, but so often, and I know so many pastors, I sat in a pastor's meeting and heard 25 pastors, and a number of them said over and over, everybody in our church listens to everybody but us. They subscribe to podcasts, they watch other pastors on TV, they all have their favorite thing, and they don't listen to what we're trying to say to that we actually know them. here's a question to ask. If you couldn't gather in any group except for under Christ, would you be okay with that? Could you live with that? If my influence, if our influence, was only that we became known as following Jesus, would that be enough for us? If we couldn't gather in any of the other big teams, could we live with just being known as trying to follow Jesus? Remember what we said discipleship is? Following somebody who's trying to follow Jesus? What if that's all we were known for? they, They seem to try to follow Jesus. Would that be enough for us? If we were rejected by people in the major camps, the major groups of our society that would make us feel very accepted and like we were part of something big, whether they're in power or trying to get in power, if we were rejected by them and all we had was that label that we were trying to follow Jesus, would that be enough for you? In Antioch, the Christians didn't fit. They had to be given a new name because they didn't fit any other categories. That was a rare thing. It made the history books. I've been kind of hard on you guys in a way. I just spoke hard words. Let me give you some encouragement. You know what's such a rare sight now is for what I mentioned earlier, Democrats and Republicans to be in the same church. This has been a hard year in our church for some of this. There have been discussions in person. There have been discussions on social media between us about our different views on politics. I am so proud to pastor a church with Republicans and Democrats in it. Can I just tell you that? To all of you who've remained committed to Christ and one another, despite your political leanings and the fact that people have different ones than you, I love you. This is rare. Don't give up. It's a beautiful thing. It shows that you're devoted to Christianity first. And it is so rare. Another thing, I had a really encouraging moment, and this like you know sounds like it's about me, but trust me, it's not. This is a whole church community thing. But I was at um I was doing the Black Friday uh stuff over at the Annex, and you know, cultivate was going on over there, and the news showed up. And the news picked three people to talk to about small businesses getting through Black Friday, and they didn't have any specific reason for this, but they picked three Christians from three different churches who love each other. And not just the Christians love each other, the whole churches love each other. They picked Kristen from Redemption, they picked Steve from The Village, and they picked me from here. And I can tell you, it's not just because the three of us like each other, they didn't even know that. They just, they were like, who's doing Business stuff and who's cooperating in this event here in the corner of the annex. And that's, they found us all working together. You know why that happens? Because our churches, Redemption, they're meeting in our building right now, right? They they love us. We love them. We're different. But seriously, we have a ton of respect for one another. There's a lot of friendships that cross over there. I'm great friends with their pastors, with leaders from there. Many of you are too. And then the village. Same deal. The village is like a one-of-a-kind church. They have like, you know, art and they sing songs that nobody's ever heard of but them. And they sit in old, ho- like, not hospital seat, but like uh, motel chairs. And they're like, it's, you know, they're, they're their own deal. But we love the village and they kill it. They do such a good job with their people. And there are so many friendships between us and the village. On accident, the news just without knowing what was going on, picked out that there's a friendship between those churches by noticing there was a friendship between the people of those churches there and saw that we were working together. What if we became known for that? What if that became increasingly true? That's rare. For years in Tucson, it was known that churches didn't work together because we were territorial. Let's get over it. Keep doing what you're doing. You guys are doing such a good job with that. In Antioch, that principle of following Christ from where they got their name helped explain the difference. Why do these people don't quite fit? They're doing it different. Let's be that way. The word Christian, you know, know, it's probably in our culture right now, kind of a tough one to pull up out of the mud. I don't care what they call us, but let's do something different. Let's be Christians like they were in Antioch And do it to the degree where people say something doesn't fit. And let's do it for the glory of God. In Antioch, their previous ideologies became secondary to the principle of grace. And that means that these people had been accepted by sheer mercy. They had nothing more to win or to prove, and they were motivated by love and not by fear or by power so when they were even driven away because of persecution, they joyfully proclaimed the name of the one who'd given them grace. And they went and told people who were very different than them, who they had no good reason to tell. They, they didn't stand to gain anything from this. They were motivated by sheer grace. Do you understand and operate out, out of those ideas? Let's just soak in that as we, as we end tonight. You are accepted by sheer mercy. Not because you're so lovable. Not because you performed so well in life. We're not better than anybody else. You could walk up and down the street and find people just as good and bad as us. We're here because of mercy, because God extended grace to us. So we have nothing to prove. We don't have to prove we're better than anybody. We don't stand on that principle. We don't need to be proud of ourselves. We are proud of Christ only. If we're accepted in Christ, there's no more striving we need to do. We have everything. We have the riches of God in Christ. We don't need to be any safer than we already are. We are 100% safe in Christ. We are already in him. We are in his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. You have nothing to defend. You belong. You're loved. You're safe. And you're secure. And you can be motivated by love since you've been so loved by God and fought for by God and protected by love, by by his love. You can go and reconcile with others. You can confess your sins to other people because you don't have anything to prove. You won't have to say, I want to keep them away because God could have said that about you, but he didn't. And because God has offered such grace to you, you can offer it to people who are absolutely undeserving. You can give out of the riches of what he's given to you. Want to disciple well? I know we do. We heard so many people talking about discipleship. That's why we did that this year. People want to disciple well. Well, then you need to think like a disciple, which is to move toward other people because of the depth of grace you have received from Christ yourself. That's all you need. That will lead to influence because it's absolutely unique. It's not winning arguments. It's, it's like nothing anybody has ever seen before. Look, Following Jesus, being his disciple, means what we've said all year here at mission. You have influence. Everyone you meet, potentially everyone who sees you, is a disciple of yours, so exude his grace. Following Jesus means you won't get to run into the crowd on other sides. You're going to have to drop your criticism of others because you have no right. You've been accepted by sheer mercy. Jesus didn't uh, didn't oppose the Pharisees and then join the Sadducees. He didn't join either one. Paul didn't teach that you offended the Jews and then joined the Greeks. He said the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. You don't get to fit in either category. The good news of Jesus calls us to be uniquely positioned as it was when the only name they could come up for the faith was followers of Christ. So may it be increasingly so among us. And may our idols fall by the wayside because God loves us. And may we see his goodness and receive it in a spirit of joy. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to leave a silent time of confession. Take this time just to examine yourselves. If if there's any piece of this that kind of just got you a little bit, if there's something in there, if there's an idol you identified or or you think you need to think about that, if there's a type of influence you've hoped for that you've thought through hearing this, maybe maybe I want an influence that's really more idolatrous than Christ-centered. If something about those words I said about the gospel just doesn't land with you where you said, I don't feel that way, I don't feel like that's true, press into that. Bring it to God. Just Just Open it up before him. There's nothing he hasn't heard. There's nothing you could say that would surprise him. So in this silent time, just confess. Open your hearts to him. Pray to him. Be honest with him. So join me in prayer before we take that time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that you, uh, well, look, your church is still here. Antioch. Was this powerful city built for idolatrous reasons? Even Christianity got twisted there, as it did all throughout that empire, obsessed with power and control. And all of their stadiums stand as relics, and their cities are buried. But God, your church, the power of your gospel, stands. And here we are standing in your grace. God, help us to root ourselves in you, in your work, from creation to consummation, all the way across your good news. Help us to root ourselves in that and that alone. We trust you to tear down our idols. Show us the way. Lead us now as we come before you.